So this morning, our goal is to highlight chapters 10, 11, and 12 of the Gospel of John. These are the last three chapters that we've been in for a few months, several months now. You could spend your whole entire life studying just the Gospel of John, and you would never exhaust the excellencies of God's Word. So as much as I tease Jeff publicly about the time we take in his sermon series, it is all in jest. It truly is brotherly teasing because it's a great blessing that we take time throughout the preaching series to understand the context and to learn application from God's word. Our prayer this morning as elders that you would be encouraged as we look back on these previous three chapters in John, you're going to notice the theme of unity this morning. You're going to see the particular unity of Jesus Christ the Son and God the Father. You're going to see that Jesus' claim of his special relationship with God the Father is one of the key reasons that the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus. Yet the union of God the Father and God the Son is also one of the key teachings to understand who Jesus is. It's a very important aspect of biblical theology. Lord willing, by the end of our time together this morning, we'll all be encouraged to apply truths from these passages. Now, each teaching is going to approach a a different chapter, so pay special attention to the thematic unity of thought throughout these chapters, and don't be overwhelmed by, by the many application encouragements you're going to hear this morning. Don't be overwhelmed. Take a note for at least one and focus on it this week. With all that being said, we're going to jump into our first teaching, which is in John chapter 10, verses 24 through 30. Now, you heard this passage during the call to worship, so so please turn there in your Bibles, John chapter 10, verses 24 through 30. Now, rather than reading it again, I want to provide the synopsis and set the stage, the context for you. This chapter is about the Good Shepherd, and I would definitely recommend, if you haven't heard it, go back and listen to Jeff's sermons walking through these texts on John chapter 12. To summarize the situation we're looking at today, Jesus is at the Feast of Dedication. That's not a common term for us today, but you might know it by the name Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights. It's occurring at Jerusalem, and Jesus is there. Now, this celebration is not uh, one of the biblical feasts. It is a commemoration of an event that occurred during the Maccabean Revolt. And again, if you listen to the sermon series, you'll learn so much more about the historical context. But why is it important that we know what's happening? Well, I'm going to be bold and say that even though that celebration of Hanukkah has a component of praising God, it is largely about deliverance from Greek oppressors. The Jews are gathered to celebrate their freedom from oppression, and they are wanting freedom again. This is why many wanted the Christ to come, to free them from the grip of Roman rule. So the Jews have heard the rumors of Jesus doing miraculous things, healing people and feeding people, but they're doubting still. They struggle thinking highly of this man from Nazareth. Remember, Isaiah describes Jesus as looking normal, no form that we should desire him. He doesn't look like a warrior king who's going to free them from Roman rule. So how could he be the Christ? You see in verse 24, the Jews question Jesus. They ask him to tell him, tell them if he is the Christ, but they don't ask this question to believe in him. They ask this question to try and use his answer against him. In verse 25, Jesus responds by highlighting that he hasn't been hiding from them, that his works bear witness of his identity. Then in verse 26, Jesus boldly proclaims that these questioning and unbelieving Jews are not his sheep because Jesus' sheep are distinct, 
They follow Jesus. Jesus gives them eternal life according to verses 27 and 28. Not only that, but in verse 29, we see that God the Father is the one who gives sheep or believers to Jesus. And they are eternally secure because of the Father. Finally, in verse 30, Jesus clearly proclaims his identity by stating that he and the Father are one, and then the Jews lose it. They're furious. Now, I want to briefly share with you four key observations of this passage. Confusion, condemnation, confession, and clarity. I like my alliteration this morning. Confusion, condemnation, confession, and clarity. And then I'll close with an application of encouragement. First, there is confusion from the Jews. Verse 24. It shows that the Jews are struggling with Jesus' identity. But it's not Jesus who is struggling. They want the Messiah to be something different. They don't want Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus had been doing miracles. They just don't want to believe. They want their Messiah to be a hero, not a healer. How many times have we been disappointed by God doing something different than what we wanted? So after hearing this heart of disbelief, Jesus responds with condemnation. It's our second observation. He says that the works that he's done, his miracles, his healings, are clear evidences of his identity. No one could do these things unless they came from God. In fact, no one could do these things unless they are God. The Jews should believe Jesus simply based off his works, but they don't. They don't believe because they aren't his sheep. Now, before you say, hey, that's not fair, how can Jesus condemn them for struggling to believe him? Well, Jesus gives an answer in verses 27 and 28. Jesus clearly confesses, it's our third observation, he confesses what his sheep do and what he does for the sheep. So first, Jesus' sheep hear him. They don't ignore Jesus as though he's in the background, you know, radio or TV. They're not trying to give Jesus their attention while busying themselves with life. No, Jesus' sheep focus on his voice. They pay special attention to everything that Jesus says. Everything. Not just the words in red letters. Second, Jesus knows his sheep. He knows them by name. He calls them and they answer. Jesus' sheep are not just random sheep wandering in the wilderness. Every single one of Jesus' sheep is known by him personally. And third, Jesus' sheep follow him. They don't try to lead Jesus. They don't tell him what to do or get all exasperated, frustrated, disappointed, whichever word you want to use, when he doesn't do what they want. They follow him. They live like him. They seek to imitate him. Most importantly, they go his way. Now, those characteristics define the sheep. But let's look at what defines Jesus' relationship to his sheep. The first thing that we see, eternal life. Jesus personally gives eternal life to his sheep. He secures life for his sheep by his power. Further, Jesus confesses it is the Father who gives sheep to him. No one is greater. No one is more powerful than the Father. Friends, this passage does clarify that salvation starts with God. It does. But there's so much more. Don't focus so much on God's sovereignty in salvation that you miss God's safety in salvation. The emphasis here in this passage is on the eternal security 
for Jesus' sheep. Now think about the term. Can eternal life truly be eternal if it can be taken away? Is there such a thing as a partial, maybe, eternal life? That sounds insane. And yet some believers are misled by the aberrant theology. You either have eternal life given to you by Jesus, or you don't. It is one of two ways. And yes, the Father must initiate a new heart for someone to be saved. But note that Jesus' sheep hear his voice. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Jesus will never turn away anyone who comes to him humbly in repentance. Never. You're never too sinful. You're never too broken. You're never too messy for Jesus. Why? Because he's the good shepherd. His sheep hear his voice. He knows them by name and they follow him. And he, that is Jesus, will protect his own sheep eternally. Not only that, God the Father secures Jesus' sheep. So believer, those in here who profess to know Christ, your greatest comfort will never be in your works or the fruit of your life, your deeds. Your greatest comfort will be in the person and the work of Jesus Christ slain for sinners. Now finally, when you see Jesus say with clarity, that's our fourth C here in John chapter 10, verse 30, that he and the Father are one. Remember this context, eternal security. This is our fourth and final observation. The Jews were furious that Jesus would claim to be one with God the Father, but they missed the comfort of this statement because of their hard hearts. Believers should see this statement of unity between Jesus Christ and God the Father and recognize that when it comes to salvation, the eternal, the all-powerful, most high God, who caused everything to come into existence by the power of his word, secures his sheep who hear his voice and follow him. Those who are given life are given life eternal. Those who have life will never perish. Those who have life in Christ have life in God. Wow. So believer, whenever your doubts creep in, whenever discouragement rears its ugly head, preach this truth to yourself. The union of God the Son and God the Father is a truth to encourage your eternal security. Jesus keeps you to the end because God the Father placed you in his hand. So friends, with that in mind, let us pray. Father, we take a moment now to pause and to let this rich truth sink in just for a moment. Father, there could be some here today who really needed to be encouraged about eternal security of believers according to the union of you and of Christ. So I pray that you not only encourage those hearts, but that if there are any unbelieving hearts in here today, you would be merciful to break hearts of stone that you would replace hearts of stone with hearts of flesh, hearts that humbly repent and seek to follow your son, Jesus. We know you will never turn away those who repent and seek forgiveness. For all of us, may we commit to our thinking that the works you showed in the Old Testament to the Israelites and the works that Jesus showed during his earthly ministry all point to your greatness and your ways. So help us to know your ways. Instruct us in your ways from your word and strengthen the resolve of your sheep to follow you. May we help one another to not be hardened against believing you and trusting you, especially when our hearts desire something you have not provided. May we grow in comfort that these that those who are saved are saved eternally. 
and that you and Jesus Christ himself hold on to us to the end. So encourage our hearts as we continue to learn from your word this morning. We pray this in the name of the one who saves eternally, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Adam, for that message. What I want to do with the time that we have is to continue to emphasize Jesus and the Father are one through the narrative of raising Lazarus from the dead and offer some practical applications that we can take away today. So before we hit our passage, we always need to look at context, right? So at the tail end of chapter 10, yep, Adam, I'm stepping on your toes. At the tail end of chapter 10, Jesus' disciples have fled Jerusalem because the religious Jews were livid that Jesus would say that he and the Father are one, that he is Yahweh. The disciples and Jesus journeyed about 30 miles east to the Jordan River. When they arrived, people were coming to see Jesus. We see in 1041 that people were saying everything that John the Baptist said about this man, meaning Jesus, is true. And many believed. So the disciples were probably thinking that they had a good thing going here. They had escaped the mobs of Jerusalem, The Jordan River was so much more comfortable. It's more peaceable to do ministry in. So we should just hang out here for the the foreseeable future. But as we will see with our narrative, God's timing is far better than our own. As we jump into chapter 11, starting in verse 1, it says this, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, behold, he who you love is sick. So the stage is all set up. We have Lazarus, one of Jesus' dear friends, so sick he's on his last leg. We have Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, sending word out to Jesus. They have spent time with Jesus. They have seen him do marvelous things. They believe that he can fix the situation. So he just needs to drop what he's doing out in the Jordan River and come and help. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard this, he said... This sickness is not going to end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Isn't that interesting? We see here that Jesus is making that connection from the prior chapter that I and the Father are one. The purpose of Lazarus's sickness is to bring glory to God. The purpose of Lazarus's sickness is to bring glory to the Son of God. Jesus and the Father are one. If we were to place ourselves in the sandals of the disciples, I'm sure when they heard that Lazarus was not going to die from this sickness, they were like, we're free and clear. We don't need to go out there, right? It's probably one of two things. One, they may be thinking, Mary and Martha are just exaggerating. He's, he's, good. he's sick. He's going to get better. It's totally fine. Jesus said he's fine, so we're good. Or what it could be is they've seen Jesus heal from a far distance. John chapter 4, 46 through 54, Jesus heals an official son in Capernaum simply by saying, Go. And that in his son would be live, and his son would live. So the official went home, and sure enough, his son was healed. So either one, I'm sure that the disciples felt a sense of relief that they weren't going back closer to Jerusalem. Why leave this ministry? People are coming to believe in Jesus here by the Jordan, and we're out of danger. This is a win-win, Jesus. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard he was sick, he stayed two days in the place where they were. And then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Let's go back close to Jerusalem. We see here that Jesus is setting up for a better plan. His intention is to go to Bethany to visit Lazarus, but oddly, he stays two more days. This waiting is not because he doesn't love Lazarus. On the contrary, he does love Lazarus, 
but there's an opportunity for many people to grow in greater faith and belief and to show that Jesus and the Father are one. So after staying two additional days, Jesus tells the disciples, all right, let's go back to Bethany, a town located just two miles away from Jerusalem. How do you think they responded? Verse 8, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you want to go there again? Jesus, you're crazy. We were just there, and we were about to be murdered by the crowds of people. Word travels fast, and crowds of people are still wanting to see Jesus heal and perform miracles. If they travel out to Bethany, it would not take very long before the religious Jews find out that Jesus is near. His disciples think that Lazarus will be fine. His sickness will not end in death, but Jesus clearly tells them that Lazarus is now dead. Oh. And so what's about to happen is actually for their good. So whether or not they did it with a joyful heart, they made the trek back to Bethany. So one thing I want, to, I want you to take home today is that one of the greatest gifts that God does for us is to strengthen our belief. Jesus has already healed so many people in front of the disciples, but he knew that this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead would have such a greater impact on their faith than just by healing him. So where I want to camp for most of today is verses 20 through 27. And starting in 20, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Let's pause here. I want to point out Martha's response. Lord, if you were just here when I wanted you here, I wouldn't have any sorrow right now. We're often like Martha in that way, right? We're often that way in our response when we have hard times or in sorrow. Lord, just immediately take away my pain. If you would just have come when I wanted you to come, everything would have worked out the way I wanted it to work out. But when does doing things our way equate to glorifying God the most? I don't want you to misunderstand me. Jesus is not an originator of sin. He didn't bring additional sorrow into people's lives. Rather, we live in a world that is broken because of sin. As we will see later in the narrative, Jesus is the savior of sin and sorrow. He is the conqueror of death. But God in his wisdom allows us to experience sickness, sorrow, trials to draw us closer to him. That those with soft hearts will have a greater faith and love for him as they work through hard times because their hope is set on things above. Not to just give Martha a bad rap either. I also want to point out Martha's faith. You know, we're not just going to tear down. She knows there is a special connection between God and Jesus. Whether you ask, she says, whatever you ask, God will give you. Jesus only does the will of his Father. He and the Father are united and are one. Martha still has hope that Jesus can do something. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus says the very thing she was hoping for. She wants him to rise again. This, this is what she wanted, right? And so she says it, but her unbelief creeps in. Let's be real. We would probably respond like Martha. She's been mourning her brother's death for the last four days. I'm sure she's thinking Jesus is just being nice. She's trying to con he's trying to console her, give her hope that one day in the far distant future that they have now both passed away, that they'll one day be reunited. But that's not what's happening here. In verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? 
So Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am embodies these things. So in his being, he is the source of all resurrection. In his being, he is the source of all life. Apart from Jesus, there is neither one. So as we ask ourselves, who created from the beginning? It's only God. Who has the power to bring death to life? It's only God. Jesus makes it clear once again that he and the Father are united as one. It's through Jesus we find salvation. He is our Savior. Only through Jesus there's victory over death. There's freedom from sin. There's newness of life. There's hope that we have in an eternal future. Everyone who lives in me, Jesus says, everyone who believes in me will never die, but have a future hope of eternity in heaven. So what does that mean? Or what does it look like for us to both live and to believe? When we think about living, I'm reminded of John chapter 15, which we'll eventually get to, that Jesus is the vine and his followers are the branches. The branch gets all its sorts of life from the vine. Any source of water, any source of nutrition, the only way that branch can grow, bear leaves, or bear fruit, it's purely by its connection to the vine. As for belief, belief is faith in who Jesus is and what he, and that he is God, and that he is the Savior, and that he is the Messiah. Jesus asked Martha a question, Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life, and that in me is found eternal life? In verse 27, she says, yes, Lord, I, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who comes into the world. Martha's response, that, that Jesus and the Father are one, that he is the promised Messiah. But like us, we may believe, but we still need God's help to help our unbelief. So Jesus then goes over to the tomb, and for the sake of time, we're going to jump over to verse 40. So verse 40, Jesus said to her, Martha, did I not say to you, that if you believe, you will see the glory of God. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you, and you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me. But because of the crowd standing around, I said this, so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who died came forth. So as a result of that miracle, many Jews saw that Jesus did, or saw what Jesus did, and they believed. So as we wrap up the narrative, I want to challenge you with two things to take home. One, as trials come, rest in what is true. When we live in a broken world, we feel the ramifications of sin each and every day. But there are days that are much more intense than others. Maybe you lost a job, maybe... You lost that job and that's where your identity was found in. Maybe you, you went to a doctor and they told you about a sickness that you weren't expecting. Or maybe you're like Martha and you lost a loved one. When we face grief, come back to what we know is true. That Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the Son of God. That he took on flesh. That he died in our place for the forgiveness of sins. That he rose in victory from the dead. That he has pro promised eternal life with him for those who believe. Nothing on earth can satisfy. We need to set our eyes on things above. We also need to see that God uses difficult trials to help us build better faith in him. It strengthens belief in who Jesus is in the moment. It is hard to see how difficult circumstances can be a blessing, but that's where our second point comes in. So our second point I want to pull from Hebrews chapter 3, 12 and 13. See to it, brothers, that there not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, 
as long it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So as we are walking through trials, let's be devoted to one another in love. Let's bear one another's burdens. Let's care and comfort one another. Let's encourage each other with truths of scripture so that our hearts would not grow hard by sin, but rather we grow in our faith and rest in the hope that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we reflect back on the raising of Lazarus from the dead, we marvel at your power. We are thankful that you conquered death in this in his life and that you conquered death on the cross for us to be saved. Jesus, as we go into this week, we pray that you would help us to delight in one another's joy and endeavor with tenderness and empathy to bear one another's burdens and sorrows. Help us walk together in brotherly love, exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over one another and faithfully admonishing one another when the occasion arises with the goal that you would help our unbelief and to strengthen us to believe in who you are, the almighty God who is worthy to be praised. Thank you, Kenny. Uh, Well, we're going to continue our flyover of three chapters this morning. We're at our final chapter, chapter 12. We're going to see in this chapter a continuation of the themes found in the previous chapters of John. The first is that Christ came to call believers to follow him. And that created a division between those who believed Christ and those who did not. Jesus said to Peter, who do you say that I am? Though this was a question directed to Peter, it's also a question for all of us today. Who do we believe that Jesus is? Do you believe that he's the son of God? Jesus said, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So either a person is a believer or unbeliever, and that creates a separation. And the second thing we see in this chapter is what Kenny and Adam have been talking about, the continuing theme of of John, of the unity of Christ and the Father, that he and the Father are one, and that he came to glorify the Father and to do the Father's will. So chapter 12 opens up in verse 1 with the dinner on Saturday night before Christ's crucifixion. And in this story, we see the division that Christ brought between those who believed and those who did not. This dinner occurred in Bethany, which is only about two miles away from Jerusalem. So this dinner was held in the shadow of the Jewish rulers. And by being there that night, Christ's followers were in danger. John 9.22 says, For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And in addition to being thrown out of the synagogue, which carried a lot of punitive consequences, the Jews were making plans to put both Jesus and Lazarus to death. Verse 10 of chapter 12 says, So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So at this dinner, there were believers like Mary, who demonstrated her devotion and commitment to Christ by not only attending the dinner, but she also broke a vial of costly perfume worth a year's wages, and blessed Christ with it by pouring the entire bottle on him. And then she humbly wiped his feet with her hair. Then there were the disciples and others in attendance at that dinner, and they too were in danger. But as true followers of Christ, they were willing to risk everything to follow him. So that's the group of people that night who were believers. So now let's look at the other camp of people. In the non-believing camp were people like Judas, 
whose selfishness and hardness of heart was on full display. Judas was only interested in his own personal gain, wanting Jesus to be a conquering king so that he too could rise to wealth, status, and prestige on Christ's Christ's coattails. His greed was evident as he complained about what he considered was a waste of costly perfume, when in actuality, he really wanted to just sell the perfume and take some of the money for himself. And then later on, when he understood that Jesus was not going to be the conquering king that he wanted, we see him going to the Jewish leaders and betraying Christ in exchange for money. But in the end, his cold, hard, calculating heart became his ruin. He chose poorly. In the non-believing camp, we also see the religious leaders who were willing to kill two innocent men for personal gain. In verse 37 of chapter 12, it says, Though he, meaning Christ, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. Incredibly, even though Christ had raised Lazarus from the dead, rather than see the clear evidence that Jesus was who he says he was, the Jews sought to cover up the evidence by killing Lazarus, and in doing so, they could retain their personal status. We see the deceit and selfishness and the irrationality of their thinking, thinking that was blinded by the darkness in their minds. Jesus had the harshest words for the religious leaders when he said in John 8, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Harsh but deserving words. The Jewish leaders also chose poorly. What a contrast between the believers that night who risked everything to follow Jesus and the non-believers who would resort to anything to advance their self-interests. Jesus said in Luke 12, Do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. And as we see in John 12, Christ succeeded in his mission, separating believers from non-believers. The contrast was clear. Those who chose him and those who did not. Those who chose wisely and lived in the light and those who rejected Christ and lived in darkness. Colossians 1 says, He has rescued us, meaning Christians, from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Every person is a member of one of two kingdoms. There's no middle ground. There's no gray area. Jesus said in Luke 11, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. So which kingdom do you belong to? It's the most important question of your life. There's no room for indecision. And indecision is actually a decision not to follow Christ. But there are incredible blessings for those who are in Christ. And just as there was a cost to Mary and the disciples to follow Jesus, there is a cost to us as well. It will cost us everything to follow Christ. Look at verses 25 through 28, chapter 12. Jesus said, starting in verse 25, whoever loves me or whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's what it takes, dying to self and following Christ. Then continuing in verse 26, Jesus says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Once again, 
Every person is given a choice to choose God's kingdom that leads to eternal life or to choose a self-willed, self-determined life that leads to eternal judgment. What choice have you made? Will you die to self and live to Christ or live for self and suffer eternal punishment? Those are the choices. Christ came to bring this decision to bear. We are told here that if we die to self and follow Christ, then God's gifts to us are more than we can possibly fathom. They're beyond our ability to understand. Think of eternal life. As Adam was talking about earlier, eternal life and eternal security in Christ. None of us can wrap our heads around the enormity of it because eternity is infinite. So in chapter 12, we see the continuation of the theme of calling believers to himself. And we also see the theme of the incredible unity of Christ and the Father. We see it in the Father honoring those who honor Christ. We see it again at the end of, chapter in, of the chapter in verses 44 through 50. Here Jesus gives his final plea to the Jews, summing up his public ministry with the gospel. There's so much to glean from this passage, but I'm going to read it. And as I do, I'd like you to try to make note of a few things. First, how in this passage, verses 44 through 50, how in this passage Christ contrasts those who believe with those who do not. Lightness, light and darkness. That Christ came to call believers to himself and so separate those who believe from those who do not. Secondly, notice the absolute unity, uh, be, uh, absolute unity between the Father and the Son as Christ says that if you have seen him, you have seen the Father. Third, notice Christ's complete submission to the Father when he says that he did not speak on his own authority but only as that the Father had told him to. And finally, notice that as Christ set the example of submitting to the will of the Father and obeying his commandments, that we too are to follow his example and to submit and obey. And that obeying Christ, we are obeying the Father too. And all of this leads to eternal life for those who believe. Okay, so starting in verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my voice and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. These words of Christ beautifully sum up the gospel, his calling of believers to himself, his ministry on earth, and his unity with the Father. Christ was giving the Jews one last chance to repent, but unfortunately, they flatly rejected him and sought to both kill him and Lazarus, two innocent men. But there were many that chose to follow Christ. And as I said before, even though following Christ will cost us everything we have, 
The blessings are far more than we can imagine. The best of which is a relationship with God. A few days after this, when Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, just minutes before he was arrested, he prayed not only about his unity with the Father, but he also prayed about his followers and that they would have unity with himself and the Father. John 17 records Jesus' prayer. Jesus prayed that they, meaning believers, may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. As Christ followers, we are in Christ. We have unity with Christ and the Father. This new union that believers have with Christ is important to our understanding of the gospel. Did you know that the words in Christ appear 160 times in the New Testament? Next time you're reading the Bible and see the words in Christ, think of your union with him. A union with Christ, our union with Christ, secures eternal life in Christ. And not only are we united with Christ as believers, but John 1 talks of a further blessing. John 1 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. Think about that. We, as Christ followers, have been adopted into Christ's family. What an incredible blessing. Not only eternal life, not only union with Christ, but adopted as his children and heirs with Christ. Have you chosen to follow Christ? Are you a child of God? My prayer is that we would choose wisely. Let us pray.